Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. This last section of Romans 14, verses 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So let me just recap one thing concerning this passage from last week. To understand Romans 14, we need to realize that in the church community at Rome, there was tension between the Gentiles and the Jews. And the Jewish people are regarded by Paul as weak in this passage, and the Gentiles as strong. It's key that you understand this, because this is the background. The tension between them was because the Gentiles could eat anything and drink anything, and they didn't observe days. Every day to them was the same. But if you came from a Jewish background that was very strict previously in the observance of the Law of Moses and all of the other traditions and rites and rituals and things that were put up around the law and added to the law, after you were saved, you might have a problem eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but that's not what Paul is thinking of here, meat that wasn't properly slaughtered. That is, the blood wasn't drained from it. 
And you would have a problem eating that food. This was a very important thing to even Jewish Christians. Now, we know from the book of Acts the struggle that they went through in the early church regarding that. Remember Peter? In Acts chapter 10, he had that vision. And he, being a faithful Jew, he was horrified at the thought of eating any of those animals that came down on the sheet that God told him, go ahead and eat them. What I've cleansed, you can eat any of it. Oh, no, Lord, I can't. And it took three times for him to see the same vision in order to convince him that everything now was okay to eat. Well, that was the Jewish mindset, even after becoming a follower of Christ, because they were not yet able to embrace the liberty that Christ gives us from the law of Moses and from all those rituals and requirements. The Gentiles had no problem. And so there was this tension in the church, and Paul wants to bring unity to the church at Rome. He wants peace among the believers there. So that is the background to Romans 14. And now we're pressing on now to the second half of this passage, where Paul primarily addresses the strong here. And he identifies himself with the strong. He's with the Gentile believers. They have the right idea of liberty in Christ. They can eat and drink anything. Paul later tells us that in his other epistles, that there's no unclean thing now if we receive it with prayer and thanksgiving. So Paul is addressing now exclusively, almost exclusively, the strong and how they need to be walking in love toward their brothers and sisters at Rome. So this whole passage is really to help us to handle the conscientious differences that exist among Christians with regard to things that we would consider non-essentials, things that don't make a lot of difference, really, when it comes down to my standing before God. Because there are a lot of views, a lot of different ideas about, well, shall I celebrate Christmas? Or is it wrong? It's got a pagan background and, and so on. And so you may have a struggle there. Well, Paul talks about the observance of days. It has many applications um, about women wearing cosmetics and that kind of thing. That would be a, a non-essential. That's a matter of indifference, and there's different opinions about that. Some churches say, absolutely, women should not wear any cosmetics. So the, what, what is the problem in churches is that those things that are don't really make a lot of difference, they become a test of orthodoxy and fellowship with some Christians. You see that? They separate over that. That's when it's taken it too far. And so this passage corrects that. It helps us to have the right attitude toward people who differ from us on non-essentials. So let's come, first of all, and think our way through this passage. In verses 13 to 16, we have Paul's exhortation to never put a stumbling block in the way of a fellow Christian. Now he begins by saying, let us not pass judgment on one another. And I think that's just 
transitional from the previous verses 1 to 12, where he talked an awful lot about passing judgment, to now he, he transitions to putting a stumbling block before another Christian. So what is the idea of a stumbling block? Notice he uses two words here, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance. Well, these these two words are found together in other places in the New Testament and actually in the Old Testament. But what it comes down to is talking about something that is offensive and that causes another person's downfall. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is a stumbling block to his own people. They totally tripped over him and fell. And it was their downfall. Remember, Mary was told in Luke chapter 2 by the angel that this child, it wasn't spoken to Mary. Um, Yes, I believe it was actually. That this child is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to have an impact on not only his own nation, but on the world itself. Either lifting people up or bringing about their downfall and their ruin. Depending on how they respond to him, of course. So this is talking about what is offensive. What can really hurt someone? Their downfall. We're not talking about a little trip and stumble. We're talking about a serious consequence that comes about as a result of a stumbling block. Now notice what he says in verse 14. Just listen to how sure Paul is. It's very strong language here concerning his own confidence in what he's telling these people. I know and am persuaded, uses that language in Timothy, doesn't he? I know and am persuaded, Romans 8 as well, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. This is how we know that our interpretation of Romans 14 is correct, that it's a problem with, between the Jewish people and the Gentile. This text right here, because this is the language of Moses, unclean. Actually, the Greek word simply means ordinary or common, but in the context of Moses and the law, it meant what defiled you, what was profane or unclean. In other words, if you ate something that was regarded as unclean by God, you were defiled, and this was a horrific thing in the mind of a Jewish person. He wanted to preserve his relationship to God and be faithful to the covenant that he was in with God, guarding the, the sacred space of, that they were in and the line of demarcation that separated the nation of Israel from the, their neighbors. They wanted to maintain that distinction. And so everything that was unclean and defiling, they couldn't have it. They couldn't engage in it. It was absolutely forbidden in their mind. But Paul says he's convinced that in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean. Listen to that. 
This is, this is amazing change from Old Testament to New Testament right here. And it's in the Lord Jesus. In his relationship to Jesus Christ, this is the way it is for Paul. So who is Paul aligning himself with here? Clearly it's the Gentiles. He's with them. He's with the strong. Not with, but he totally understands the weak because he is a Jew himself. He knows how they think. Nothing is unclean or defiled. Jesus told that to, showed that to Peter in his vision, as I already mentioned. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And that's the context of food. So it's this, this is what he's talking about. Nothing is unclean. Everything is fine diet-wise. You can eat anything you want. It's not going to change your relationship to God. God doesn't look at things like that anymore. And even in Mark chapter 7, in that context, when Jesus was answering those, saying, you're, you're eating that that's defiling. And Jesus says, it's not what a man takes into his stomach that defiles him. It's what comes out of him, out of his heart. The food simply passes through us and it's gone. It's what comes out of a man's heart that defiles him. And then Mark has, in his text, a a comment on that passage. In Mark 7, verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. So even in Jesus' teaching, way back during his ministry, he was asserting this. And teaching this same thing. That no food is defiling. It's no longer about diet. Or days, for that matter. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved... Now, the word grieve here is too soft. (laughs) This is not talking about a momentary kind of feeling of sadness over something. This need to be translated in a much stronger way. This is the idea of being deeply hurt and distressed over this. A brother being really, really negatively impacted by another Christian eating something that he was horrified at the thought of eating. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. You know, love here is agape. So he's talking about Christian love. This is the most basic thing of Christian living, is it not? That we walk in love. That we follow the Lord Jesus Christ in that sense of walking in love toward one another. That has priority over my diet. I can't let my liberty in Christ about what I eat, the kind of food that I eat, supersede the basic principle of Christian living. It's not more important. I have to be willing to temper this, to limit myself. Now, Paul's not asking us to give up our liberty. 
That's not what he's teaching here. He's talking about limiting, in some situations, the exercise of our Christian liberty. And those are two different things. Paul isn't trying to take away your freedom in Christ. He's simply saying, here's a situation when you need to be thinking of others more than yourself, walking in love, putting some restrictions. And really, I think it has a lot to do with how what they see you doing. In other words, what you do in your home, really, nobody's going to see that. You can eat anything you want in their, without them viewing it or being offended by it. And then Paul adds this, you're no longer walking in love, and then by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, I think we've all kind of wondered about that, because not only do we read that here, but it's in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul uses the same language, it's the same issue, only there it's about the Gentiles being a uh, offending other, some were offended by the eating of meat that had been offered to idols in the temple. And some could eat it and some could not. And there was a problem there between them over the same kind of thing, diet. And Paul deals with that issue in 1 Corinthians 8 a little differently, but the principles are the same. And he talks about offending a brother, making him stumble, and destroying him. Now, what's interesting is the word for destroy is the New Testament word for perishing. John 3.16, those who believe in Jesus, the Son of God, shall not perish. It's that same word. And so all the commentators believe Paul is thinking of the future of these people is in jeopardy. In other words... Our actions can have serious repercussions on a fellow Christian who is weak in not being able. Paul says weak in the faith. That's why not weak necessarily in their faith in Christ, but weak in being able to apply uh, their faith in all areas and enjoy real Christian liberty. They're weak in that sense. But Paul says, do not do this because you don't want to destroy a brother or a sister for whom Christ died. So our actions have the potential for really hurting somebody in the ultimate sense, eternally. Eternal ruin is in view here. I I agree with that. Now, how how does that come about? How would that possibly happen? I was trying to think of an application in a different way. So by the sin of, let's say, if a well-known pastor who falls into gross sin, and we've all heard about it, the impact of that on the weaker members of the church could be devastating. People would leave the church, walk away from Christ, some of them, I've had enough of this. I don't believe this anymore. Look at what the man who's been leading the church, what he did. And it could lead to them just walking away from Christ, abandoning the faith, not persevering. What's the end if we do not persevere in the faith? We're not saved. 
Many people have started the Christian life, made a profession of faith, but they don't continue to the end. They might go for a while, but then they give up, walk away from it. Were they saved? No, they were not saved. Doesn't matter if they prayed the prayer a dozen times, went forward in the church, did all those things. They did not have a true regeneration experience that changed their life permanently because they gave up their faith. And that is proof that it was not real to begin with. But nobody knew that because on the outside, everything we could see looked legitimate, looked like they were sincere, real believers. But the lack of continuing and abiding in Christ. Remember, Jesus said, you have to abide in me. If you don't abide abide in me, you're you're a branch that's going to be cut off. That branch is going to be snipped off by the Father. And those branches are going to be gathered and burned in the fire. It's essential that people who profess faith in Christ, that they continue in the faith. There's no salvation promised to anybody who does not continue. Matthew 24, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. That's, that's, that's the teaching. And so apparently Paul is believing that we can, by offending, deeply offending and upsetting somebody to this extent that their conscience is violated, their religious convictions are violated in a very profound way, that it could cause them to walk away from the faith and thus perish. But Paul reminds them, they're in the church. These are the people for whom Christ died. So his conclusion, verse 16. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. This is clearly to the strong. The Gentiles. So he's saying your, your understanding of Christ's work has granted you freedom and a liberty in these matters. You're not in bondage. You enjoy this, this liberty. This is something good. This is a blessing. But be careful that it doesn't turn into something that others are going to say, and the word in the original here for evil is blasphemy. So it's the idea that a, a brother who is offended by the strong and his eating and drinking and, and all of that, that it, it really affects them in such a way that they lash out and they, they speak evil against this of the very... Freedom that Christ purchased for them, to the point of almost blasphemy. So this whole idea of causing a Christian to stumble is, is very serious, what he's talking about here. This is a serious consequence of Christians misusing their liberty in Christ. Now, in the next two verses, 17 and 18, I think we have Paul's, his theological foundation, kind of giving the reasons why it's like this. So here, here's the theology behind it. It has to do with the kingdom of God. 
It's, it's beautiful how he weaves this in. This is the only time in Paul's letter of Romans he mentions the kingdom. Right here. And he talks about the nature of the kingdom. It's important to know what the kingdom of God is all about. Because this is, this is why eating food, drinking, wine, and all that, it doesn't make any difference. The kingdom of God, he says, is not about that. See, verse 17. For, for the kingdom of God, he's presenting now a very powerful argument. And it's a theological one. It's how we understand the kingdom, which is one of the greatest subjects of the whole Bible. The kingdom of God. I've never heard anyone yet really fully explain it and develop it like I think it could be. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not about that. It's not about the externals. These are non-essential matters. These are Areas of indifference. They don't really matter. Don't get hung up on them. It's, it's not what's important. But rather, what is the kingdom of God about? Oh, look at this. About righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 23 about the Pharisees. He said, you're very strict in your observance of the law. Tithing even your herbs and spices. Giving a 10% of, of those things. This is how precise they were about giving God a tenth of everything. But he says, you overlook the weightier matters of mercy, justice, and peace. This is the same idea. What is most important? This is what characterizes the kingdom of God. Now, we've come across these words before. This isn't the first time Paul is mentioning righteousness. The whole book of Romans is about righteousness. The righteousness of God that we receive by faith in the gospel that justifies us. And what, when we're justified, what is the first thing Paul says we enjoy? Peace with God. Romans 5. This is where these words come out again, previously. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this is what the kingdom is all about. It's about righteousness, righteous living. Living in compliance with God's will. Wanting to please Him. Enjoying... The peace of God, peace with God, being a peacemaker, trying to make peaceful relationships with others and be for between others, and joy. And he says, in the Holy Spirit, I, I kind of take the view, I lean toward the view that. Of the Holy Spirit, referring not simply to joy, but it goes back to all three. Righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. That these come from Him. The enjoyment of these things. This is spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Remember, we have to 
be regenerated to enter or see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That means you can't perceive it. You can't perceive it. A person who is not yet regenerated has no perception of this subject. A kingdom of God? What do you mean by that? I don't see a kingdom. Where's the king? They're oblivious to the whole idea of a kingdom. Not knowing they are in the kingdom of darkness. They are in another kingdom. There's only two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's dear son. And we're in one or the other. In order to be translated out of darkness, and we're all in darkness when we start out in this world, we're in the kingdom of dark. We are transferred by the grace of God, the power of God, into the kingdom of his dear son. Where do you get that in the Bible? Oh, Colossians 1.13 says it beautifully. Paul says that we've been translated. He has translated us. From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That happens at regeneration. We have to be born again to perceive the kingdom. And Jesus says, and to enter the kingdom. He says it both ways. To Nicodemus. And he said it to one of the most religious persons that you can find in the New Testament. Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a teacher. He had all of the qualifications of being a man of God. And we see him later in John's gospel helping Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus. He became a believer. His encounter with the Lord Jesus that night changed his life. He was never the same. Came to faith. Now just notice that word is. The kingdom of God is. Not a matter. You know what that tells me? The kingdom of God is a present reality. He doesn't, take, he doesn't say the kingdom of God will be. Now there is a sense in which the kingdom is in the future. And so theologians say the kingdom is now but not yet. Put that little phrase in your mind. That's a good one. You find that in all the modern commentaries that talk about future things. The kingdom is not yet. But it is now. And so we're in a present reality. The kingdom of God now is. We enter it by faith and by regeneration. But there is a glorious future aspect of the kingdom that we do not yet enjoy. This is the the great hope of the Christian. Entering the kingdom in a new body and so on. Now, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ. Now, just notice how he casts this. He's been talking about not making your brother stumble. This is his language. Now, he he, he flips it around. He's going to put it in a different way. He he now is talking, he's putting the whole thing in terms of he who serves Christ in this way. I'm glad he does it like that because he's, he's reminding us. Don't get caught up, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this. No, you've got to think of it. This is all done in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We do it as his people, as his servants. This is to move us to to want to do it willingly and with joy because it's ultimately for him to please him. Yes, I'm concerned about my brother and my sister. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to injure them spiritually. But I don't want to just make that my whole focus. I want to I want to understand this is how to make the kingdom of God my focus and doing it in a way that is acceptable to the Lord himself, to the king of that kingdom. So he is pleased with it. It is an act of service to him. Whoever thus serves Christ, notice, is acceptable to God. In other words, God is pleased with this. This is pleasing to the Lord. And Paul even adds, and approved by men. That's interesting. Because he makes, he's, he's taking, he's making a norm for Christian behavior out of doing something that the generality of mankind would look at as praiseworthy behavior. That that is worth doing. If the majority of people who are good, kind-hearted people, and they can look at this and make an objective judgment on somebody's behavior. They're going to look at it and say, you know how he acts, she acts? That's, that is good, what they're doing. Sometimes the world would admit, will admit that. Though Paul uses that as an argument. Let your conduct be Observed by others as approved by them, having their respect. That's a worthwhile argument. So, you know, I need—I just need to ask myself, does my attitude and my actions toward others look like I am a servant of Jesus Or am I serving myself? How does my life style come across to others? How how will they perceive me as a Christian? As a professing Christian? Hopefully, they'll say, you know, he's a pretty good guy after all. I disagree totally with what motivates him. But I have to at least admit He was a a good person. He did the right thing. Now, lastly, in verses 19 to 23, we have Paul's final uh, exhortation here. And really, what, what he does in this section is he's putting, he wants us to put the kingdom principles into practice. Essentially, what he said about the kingdom being not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What the kingdom is all about, Paul now is going to apply that in his exhortation, that he, he wants this to be what really undergirds our behavior. So, he says, verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace 
and for mutual upbuilding. So right off. Let us pursue. Let's diligently follow. I mean, that word pursue is pretty strong. This is the whole idea of persecuting something. A persecutor is somebody who pursues. He tracks them down. He's very, and he's very diligent about, about it. So Paul's talking about being diligent to follow after what is going to encourage and facilitate peace with other people. Why would Paul say that? Well, because there was some unrest in the church at Rome. This is why he would say this. He must have caught, Paul's not in Rome. Remember, he's writing this letter, dictating this letter from Corinth. Yeah, this is where he sent Rome. It's a letter from Corinth. So he's at a, he's from he's a, some distance away, but he hears through the grapevine this problem in the church. So he's encouraging now their diligent pursuit of what is going to really facilitate peace with other people, although there are these differences that exist between them. And he adds to pursuing peace. What is mutual upbuilding? This is, this is Paul's word he uses many, many times. The word for edification, that we translate edification. It means to build up. It's the opposite of tearing a building down. It's, it's building up. This is, this is how it's to work among Christians. We're to be concerned about edifying one another. Building one another up, helping one another, encouraging one another. Not in criticizing, not in tearing down. Criticism comes very easy to many of us. When you have that bent in your personality to think negative anyway, which I admit that's how I am. I always think like that. It's hard to flip that switch sometimes and to try to put it in a positive light. But Paul wants us to encourage one another and build up each other. So, you know, sometimes the disagreements between Christians over these matters of indifference leads not to building up but to tearing down. Demolition is going on in the church in some places. Pretty sad. Tearing one another down. Now, verse 20, do not, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. What's he talking about? The work of God. Well, he's talking about the believer. The believer is the work of God. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're the work of God in a couple of senses. The most basic, by virtue of being his creature, you're a creature of God. Do you think of yourself like that? God made me. 
I mean, one of the first things you teach your children when you're teaching them the kids' catechism. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his glory. I remember taking the kids through that. Over and over again. Teaching them the question and answer form. They may not get it at first. But give them a few years and some of that will click in. And hopefully they'll begin to think of themselves as creatures of God. So basically, we're the work of God. We're the... We are the product of God's work by virtue of creation and our recreation in Jesus Christ. You're the work of God. Now, Paul says, don't destroy God's work over food. Doesn't he make it look silly? He makes it look like, oh my, how could I possibly do that? That's his point. He's trying to bring us around to see that this is the wrong way to approach it. Don't tear down God's work over such a trivial matter as food. He adds, everything is indeed clean, what he said in verse 14. Everything is indeed clean, but... It is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So yeah, I can I can believe everything is clean. That's my theology. That's what I hold to strongly. That's an expression of the freedom I have in Christ. But I have to be aware that not everybody thinks like that. Not everybody sees it that way. There are differences of opinion. So I have to be conscious of that. And be careful not to wrong someone over this issue. Verse 21, Paul says, It is good not to eat meat. And now he adds, drink wine. This is the first time he mentions that. But again, this would have to do with wine being a libation poured out in some ritual involving idolatry and false gods. A Jewish person would not be able to drink wine that had that as its origin. In addition to eating meat that had been improperly, not kosher, not properly slaughtered. So he adds now wine to it. It doesn't have anything to do with alcohol, the alcohol content. That's not what's in view here. For a Jewish person, they had no problem drinking wine. So it's it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that... Notice he adds now, or do anything. So he's now broadening the principle... Even though his issues are the observance of days, the eating of meat, now he adds wine. But now he says, or do anything. (laughs) Which takes in celebrating Christmas, wearing makeup, all the many, many things that people get hung up on as Christians, wondering, is this right? Can I do this? And so on. These are immaterial matters. Or anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's not good. 
So we have to be aware of how we're going to impact others in some of these areas. So Christian liberty must sometimes put aside, must be put aside by the, the greater principle of Christian love, to be willing to let go of some of the freedoms that cause offense in order to promote peace. Now, he says specifically to the strong, This verse 22 is to the strong. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. This is so wise of Paul, how he's saying this. So just take now a strong person. This is a Gentile who can do any of these things. He has no problem with it. He can do it. He says... Keep, keep that between you and God. In other words, don't rub it in the face of your Jewish brother. <laughs> you don't need to even tell him what you can do. This is a matter between you and God. Keep it between yourselves. Keep it private. And Paul adds, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is, this is the position of the strong. And Paul says he's blessed. The strong is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. In other words, he, he, he drinks the wine, he eats the, the pork, he, he, he does all these things, but he's not at all bothered by it. He doesn't judge himself and feel terrible and guilty about it afterward. No, his conscience is clear. He's enjoying his freedom Now, it's really freedom from Moses, but he wasn't really bound to Moses anyway, So, but he's enjoying a freedom in Christ, the Gentile believer. Now Paul addresses the weak. Our final verse, verse 23. What does he say to the weak? But whoever has doubts, this is, this is the, the weak Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So here's a weak person and they see the, the Gentile believer enjoying this freedom, being able to eat, drink, and do all these things. And he's thinking to himself, Boy, I'd really like to be like that. I think I will do what he's doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat some of that meat anyway. And he eats. And what happens? No, he doesn't. He's not ready for the consequence. Because, first of all, he, he, he is condemned. That is, he's self-condemned by eating because his religious convictions are such he can't do that. But he goes ahead and he does it anyway because he sees this other person and that persuades him to go ahead with it. But it's a violation uh, of his conscience, his convictions, and he, he can't eat out of faith. He can't, and this is what Paul says, because he's eating not from faith. That is, he doesn't do it in the confidence that he's, he's, he's doing the right thing. He doesn't have the faith to really do that thing that he does. And he crosses a line when he does that. And it's a terrible thing that happens to him. 
And Paul even labels it, if he does that, if he violates his conscience and does what his conscience is forbidding him to do, Paul labels it as a sin. So this this is an undergirding principle to the whole matter of things indifferent. There was a time, I can tell you this about myself, when I could not drink alcohol in any way. And looking back on it, I missed the opportunity to make a connection to my father-in-law, who was a lost man, over the simple thing of having a beer with him. But I say, oh, no, I can't have a beer. It was offered to me, but I said, no, not going to drink that. And it would have been wrong for me to have one because my conviction was a Christian should not drink alcohol. This is the kind of church I was in. This was a conviction of the school that I went to, the Bible school. And so I had this very strong feeling about it. Well, over the years, became very liberal on that. Yeah, that, that has been lifted. I don't view it like that anymore. I see that they drank wine in the New Testament. It's not, alcohol is not a sin. What's a sin is drinking not in moderation. Amen. Getting drunk. And so on. That's what the Bible forbids. So... I've been able to loosen up a little bit and can have a margarita when I go out for Mexican food or have a beer. I don't drink to excess ever. But that that was a change in my own life that fit this. It would have been a violation of my conscience and a sin 40 years ago. But it isn't now. So you know what has to happen? Sometimes our conscience is not correctly enlightened or educated. We have a false conscience because of things that may have been imposed on us growing up, not not really from the Word of God. But these become then issues to us. And what has to happen is our conscience needs to be enlightened with the Word of God. And this was true of the weak in Paul's day. The Jewish believer, he just did not grasp yet that liberty that he has in Christ from Moses. He needed the book of Galatians to help him. (laughs) That's where he lays it out. And so it's a process. So sometimes when you feel guilty about something, other people look look at that and say... You know, why are you feeling guilty about that? That doesn't seem to be very serious to me. Well, we, got, we can't just tell somebody to give that up because it's a problem for them. We've got to give them time to learn, grow, and come to their own conclusion about a thing, that it's right or wrong, and so on. So it could go the other way where my conscience needs education in the right thing, that perhaps I'm a little bit too liberal, and I, there's things I should be convicted about, like things that I watch on 
YouTube and TV and so on. I can just sit and watch murders and other things and not be bothered by it. I got a problem. Though my conscience could need to be educated in the other way too. So it works in both directions. So this is how I want to sum this up. This is what Paul is advocating. Paul is not advocating that Christians give up their freedom but rather to limit the exercise of their freedom in certain situations for the benefit of other people. This, this, is, this is what he's telling us. And I, I would add this, to that we've got to be careful that we don't put more value on our freedom to eat meat or drink, that we've put more value on that than the spiritual state of a Christian brother or sister for whom Christ died. So Paul has really shown us that there is a big lopsidedness here in our judgment if we do put more stress on our freedom to eat and drink. He wants to put the emphasis on the brother, the sister, their eternal good. Christ died for them. We need to walk in love toward them and so on. It's it's such a beautiful, balanced presentation to us. Paul's word here in Romans 14. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.